morning we will be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. So let me invite you to turn there in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 3. Last week we saw the superiority of the covenant of Abraham to the covenant of Moses. The false teachers there in the churches at Galatia were trying to convince them that newer was better. And therefore, the covenant of Abraham now can be done away with so that in its place is put the law of Moses. But but Paul wanted them to see that just because the law of Moses comes along, it doesn't nullify the promise, the covenant with Abraham. It doesn't do away with it. In fact, newer is not always better. And the law of Moses was only designed to be temporary. It was only designed to point people to Christ because it showed them their sin. They couldn't fully obey it. They couldn't fully satisfy all of its demands. And therefore, they recognized their sinful state and their need for the seed to come, the seed of Abraham. And so that really points forward to Christ, but it also points back to the covenant with Abraham. That The covenant with Abraham with Abraham was actually a unilateral promise. That is a one-sided covenant where God walked through the split animals. Remember in Genesis 15 we looked. And so God's not going to go back on it just like we can't go back on human contracts once they have been finalized. Why would God go back on any of His contracts or covenants once they have been finalized? And so, in that sense, the the law of uh, the covenant with Abraham was superior to the covenant with Moses. Now, um, that doesn't mean that they're at odds with each other, and and we'll see that today. That the covenant with Moses, the law of Moses, was really designed to be in harmony with the law or the covenant with Abraham. That it was designed to be in harmony, not at disharmony, not at odds with it, but to show people their sin and then ultimately point them to the seed that was promised to Abraham. Point them to the Messiah. So the law was designed to show people their sins and it was only to be temporary. Have you ever heard an unbeliever say, you know, we're all God's children? Or maybe you've heard a believer say that, speaking about every single person in the world. We're all God's children. Well, that's not really a valid statement, is it? It would be better to say that we're all made in the image of God. If we want to say we all have a common bond, that's true. That as humans, we're all made in the image of God. And therefore, um, we should not uh, slander people who are a different ethnic race or different gender than us or anything like that. But the Judaizers were trying to say that if we want to be children of God, children of Abraham really, as as was portrayed in the Old Testament, then then we need to take on all of these Jewish customs, civil, ceremonial, and moral laws that that Moses has set out. If that's if you want to be a, a son of Abraham, a child of God, and that's how you you do it. And um, so, in that sense, they were saying we are all of God's children. We, that is, those of us who are ethnically related to Abraham. And what Paul does is he comes along and says, no, that's not the case. If you want to be a true child of God, you need to 
belong to Abraham's seed, the Messiah. You need to belong to Christ. We'll see that when we get to the end of this passage. In fact, let's read this passage and, um, and then we'll see what God has for us as we go through it. Galatians chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 23. This is the Word of God. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The law of Moses was designed to be temporary. However, it was necessary. Okay, because what the, the, uh, what the response could be by the opponents of Paul would be this. They would say, well, if the law of Moses is inferior to the covenant with Abraham and it's only temporary, then why, do, why did God even bring it along? And Paul addresses that potential objection by saying, it's actually designed for a specific purpose. We saw that last week in verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. It was to show people their sin. But it was also designed to point people to Christ. And when Christ came, then the law could be set aside. And that's in fact what happened. So let's look at this passage. The law was temporary but it was designed to point people to Christ. Verses 23 and 24, we see that before faith in Christ came, Israel was under the law. And then the last part of the passage, verses 25 through 29, after faith in Christ came, believers are given a new position. So let's look at the first part, verses 23 and 24. Before faith in Christ came, Israel was under the law. And the reason I say before faith in Christ came is because of the first part of the verse. Look at verse 23. But before faith came. Now, I, I added the words in Christ. And I think Paul would agree with that. And the reason I know that is because the Greek word for faith here is actually two words. It's, it's the article and the word faith. Okay, so when, when our translators put it in here, they put before faith... But a, but a better translation would probably be, but before the faith came. Before the faith. That's what I mean by the article. The. Okay? Before the faith came. So when Paul says that, what is he talking about? Let's think about this for a second. Before the faith came. When was faith not in the universe? Okay? Was, it, was faith not in the, the universe before Christ? Hey, think about the Old Testament. Was there faith before Christ? And absolutely, yes, we have to say it because remember, uh, chapter 3, look up to chapter 3, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God. He had faith in God and God reckoned that to him as righteousness. Okay, so there was faith. 
Verse 7, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So, before Christ came, there was faith. Well, let's think about before Abraham. Was there faith before Abraham? Yes. In fact, you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you find out about Abel. And what does it say about Abel? By what? By faith. Okay, so we have faith before Abraham. So what is Paul talking about when he says, before the faith came? Is he talking about before humans were on the earth? Is that the idea there? Well, I think the answer is actually found in the previous verse. We think about how we finished last week. Look at verse 22. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, now we're breaking up into sections, so we stop in verse 22, but when the readers, the original readers would have looked at this, they would have been continuing. Obviously, like you're reading a letter, you read the whole thing. So, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, verse 23, but before the faith, or that faith I was just talking about, the faith in Jesus Christ came. We were kept in custody under the law. Okay, so now this helps paint the picture for us. What Paul is talking about. He's saying before faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith was always based on the promise of a Redeemer. And so in that sense, it was based on Christ. But what he's talking about is the faith that comes through the knowledge of of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That didn't come until He actually showed up on the earth, right? So he's saying before that, notice what happened before that, that we were kept in custody under the law. That we were kept in custody under the law. Now that we see which faith Paul is talking about, we can understand this next phrase, that that we are kept in custody under the law. And that is his Jewish readers. Now, not all of the churches... Not all of the people in the churches in Galatia were made up of Jews. In fact, most of them were Gentiles. But when Paul says we, he's talking about his Jewish race here. He's saying we as Jews were kept in custody under the law, right? Because Gentiles weren't under the law. No, he's talking about Jews here. So so the Jews were held in custody under the law before the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ came. And so he says... That's the way it was before. And now let me give you two illustrations to show you how the law held us in custody. Okay? How the law, um, what the law was like before Christ came. This is what the law was like. First is, I just mentioned it, that, that they were imprisoned. The second part of verse 23, they were held in custody. Now think about this for a second. How did the law imprison the Jews? How did the law imprison the Jews? Well, look at the second part of the verse. It tells us. Kept us in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Okay? They were withheld from the knowledge of the revelation of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so in that sense, they were imprisoned under the law. Now, there's another sense in which they were imprisoned, that they were imprisoned because of their sin and their inability to get out of it, and the inability to satisfy the law. But I think the sense that he's making here is that they were 
held from the, the full knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until, and this is all they knew, the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. All they knew is that it, this one who would save Israel would be a seed of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham. They didn't know the name. Uh, they didn't know where he would come from other than Bethlehem. He'd be born in Bethlehem. But, but, they, but they were held in custody not knowing that full information. And so the first way the law... Uh, the first thing that did, the law did for the Jews was it imprisoned them. And then the second illustration Paul uses is in verse 24, and that is that it disciplined them. It disciplined them. It actually guided them to where God wanted them to go. And the reason I say discipline is because of this uh, illustration that he uses in verse 24. Let's read it. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Notice that word in verse 24, tutor. Now, this word tutor is only used two times in the New Testament. One's in verse 24 and the other's in verse 25. So we don't have a whole lot of context outside of this passage to know what Paul is talking about. But we do know a little bit more about what tutors were like in the ancient Near East. Now, when you think of a tutor, what do you think of? Think of what kind of role do they play in a person's life? Teaching, right? They sit down with a student and they teach them how to how to to get ahead how to how to make it through a certain class or whatever but but that's not the what a tutor was in the ancient near east it was not a college age kid who would come along during the school year or during the summer help a person who's failing in his class or helping a person to excel or whatever a tutor in that in those days was actually a slave he was hired by a master and he would be responsible to care for the children of that master. And when I say care, he had to make sure that the kids were dressed. These were usually older kids. They were somewhat independent, but he still had to make sure that they were dressed properly, that they were at the right places they need to be, that they were uh, fed and all those sorts of things. In fact, when these tutors would take the children to school, the tutors would have a separate room where they would stay. And they would wait for the children. So you would think the tutors would be in the classroom teaching the kids, right? But no, they're, they're actually sitting in a separate room waiting for them to get done being taught. And so their responsibility was kind of, we could say, oversight. It would, be pro- it would probably be more similar to a nanny in our day or a governess, as you may have seen on some, uh, some films or videos. Um, a few summers ago, we visited the Etzel and Eleanor Ford house. I'm not sure if you've been there or not. It's over in Gross Point Shores. And the house had a separate living quarters for the children. In fact, when the, the Fords would entertain guests, sometimes from places all over the world, um, the kids would have to stay in their separate living quarters and wouldn't be allowed to, to, to interact with the guests in any way. And so while they were there, they were be, being watched over by a nanny or a governess, this, what an ancient Near Eastern person would call a tutor. And um, so, so now let's think about this now with regard to what Paul is saying. The law has become our tutor, verse 24, to lead us to Christ. How do you suppose 
a person would view a tutor in those days? How do you, how would you view a governess or a nanny if if you were born into a rich family? Is it your best friend? You know, gonna help you out? No, they were actually responsible for disciplining the child, right? They were actually responsible to make sure that they were staying in line, that they were meeting up to the standards given to them by the master. And so this is what Paul's saying that the law was like. The law was like that governess, the nanny, the tutor. It was over the people of Israel and it disciplined them. It showed them the right way to go, but but there was a sense in which they were imprisoned. They wanted to get out from under it, right? Like the kids from 7 to 18 who would be under these tutors in the ancient Near East they would want to they would look forward to the day when they would get out from underneath this tutor and that's what the law did it wasn't perfect it wasn't designed to be forever to be eternal it was designed for them to want and to desire to be out from underneath it and get to a place where they could where they could uh, be under Christ himself where they could uh, have freedom, as Paul says in other places. There is a freedom in being in Christ. And that's the picture that Paul is painting. It was designed to show their sin, verse 19, as we saw last week. It was designed to show them that the seed would come. It was designed to imprison them, make them want to get out. And it was designed to discipline them and keep them heading toward the right goal, Christ. So before faith in Christ came, before faith in Christ came, Israel was under the law. But verses 25 to 29, after faith in Christ came, believers were given a new position. Believers are given a new position. And here's really where it touches down in our lives. Because we are not a part of Israel. We are not under the law. We never were. Because Christ came before we were born. And so that in, in that way, we get to, as long as we're in Christ, enjoy all the benefits that are listed here in verses 25 through 29. Notice verse 25. The first benefit is that we are freed from the curse of the law. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The reason I say curse of the law is because Paul used that language earlier in this book that all who are under the law are under a curse. Right? Look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. This is where Israel found themselves. They couldn't fully obey all that the law of Moses demanded of them. And so in that way, they were cursed. And so the first benefit we see here for being, for having faith in Jesus Christ is that you and I are freed from that curse. We don't have to, to meet up to all of these, that is, do more and more things until God finally accepts us. We're freed from that curse. second benefit is found in verse 26. And that is adoption. Adoption into God's family. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice the, the progression there. We're, we're adopted through faith. 
So, the result of our faith in Jesus Christ is what? It's adoption. We are sons of God. Sons and daughters of God. And So, let me try to mix metaphors a little bit here without confusing you too much. Imagine that you are the governess of a master's house or a nanny. Or if you're a guy, you can be a mechanic or or something else like that. Something manly. But as a governess, what inheritance would you receive when the master dies? Nothing. Right? But suppose that master decided, I'm going to adopt you into my family. I'm going to treat you like one of my daughters, one of my sons. Now when the master dies, he says, you are going to get an inheritance just like my other sons and daughters will get an inheritance. You see, when you come to faith in Jesus the Messiah, you're no longer a slave under the law, but you're actually bought out from that and actually made one of the family members. Once his enemies, once his enemy now seated at his table. That's who we are as Christians. So the first benefit of being in Christ, having faith in Christ, is that we are freed from the curse of the law. The second is that we are adopted into His family. And the third is found in verse 27. And that is we are baptized by the Spirit. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, I said baptized by the Spirit. When you hear the word baptism, you normally think of water baptism, and I, I do the same. But I would think, and, and there are many, plenty of places where the Scriptures speak of water baptism, but here I think Paul is talking about spirit baptism. And I would suggest that for three reasons. Number one, Paul's talking about, if Paul were talking about those who are water baptized, uh, then then every single person who were who was water baptized would also be notice the end of the verse clothed uh, verse uh, 26 clothed with Christ now is that the case is every single person who has been water baptized been clothed with Christ no there are false professions of faith there are improper baptisms so therefore that's why that's the first reason why don't think Paul's talking about water baptism. And the second reason is because Paul seems to be talking about a specific group. Notice the first part of the verse. For all of you who were baptized into Christ. And he's talking about genuine believers. All of you who were genuinely saved and received baptism of the Spirit have been clothed with Christ. The natural result for a person who has been Spirit-baptized is that they have been clothed with Christ. That is, their, their works reflect that Christ has done a work in them. And then thirdly, third reason I think this is Spirit-baptism is because the basis for union with Christ, which we're going to see here in the next verse, is Spirit-baptism. Okay. In fact, it's at the end of this verse. All who are baptized into Christ have been have clothed themselves with Christ. 
So our union with Christ is based on our baptism in the Spirit. In other words, water baptism is not why we are clothed with Christ, right? That seems to be the connection in verse 26. If he were talking about... I'm sorry, verse 27. If he were talking about water baptism, all of you who were water baptized have clothed yourself. It's, it's as if the basis for our being clothed in Christ, our union with Christ, is our water baptism, which is not the case. The basis that for our being clothed with Christ is our spirit baptism. And spirit baptism... Uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about union with Christ here in just a second. But spirit baptism is the judicial placing. It's not experiential. You're not going to feel it, but it's a placing of a believer into the body of Christ. That's what spirit baptism is. So what Paul's talking about here, and he he talks about this in First Corinthians 12 verse 13 several times in Acts that the believers received the, the, the Spirit. that was being, They were baptized with the Spirit and they were able to speak in tongues. This was their joining of the universal body of Christ. That God took them as a believer and placed them into the universal body of Christ. And what is the expression of our spirit baptism? Okay, That is the inward, non-experiential, invisible uh, placing of ourselves into the body of Christ that Christ does, that's spirit baptism. What's the outward, visible expression of spirit, spirit baptism? Water baptism. Exactly. The way that we express that we have had true spirit baptism is we get water baptized. See? And so we think about, when we think about spirit baptism, think about God as a judge that He looks at us and He says, I legally count you no longer as a governess, a nanny, okay, a servant. I count you as a son. I count you as a daughter. And so legally, you are treated as such. You're treated as part of the body of Christ. You're united with Christ and also with His body. All right? The fourth benefit of having faith in Jesus Christ is found in verse 28, and that is union with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ, I said, was the basis for spirit. Uh, uh, spirit baptism is the basis for union with Christ. That is, our being clothed with Christ, this union with Christ, has to do with a, a union in the body as well. That's what we see here in verse 28, that there is no distinction here. We don't set up walls that say you have to be a certain gender or a certain ethnic group in order to join our church. There is a union that is, that is we are one in Christ, that there are no distinctions in that way. And Christ binds us. He inseparably binds us to His own body, to Himself and to His body. And that means that we don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. We don't have to be a Jew to be accepted before God. Now, what Paul is not talking about here in verse 28, he's not talking about equality in the job field. Okay, Lots of people go to this passage here 
verse 28 and say, because there's neither male nor female, then there, there should be no glass ceiling for women. Okay, there, they should be paid the same amount of money. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about inside the local church, there is an equality. That there is no distinction because of gender, because of ethnic group. Okay, that that it, when it comes to our justification before God, which group is better in God's eyes? Male or female? I hope you didn't answer that question with one of, one of those two answers. Which group is better, Jew or Gentile? Okay, we're all justified. How? In Jesus Christ. And so in that, in that way, we are all on the same footing. We have the same standing before God. That's what he's talking about in these verses. There is a union with Christ that gives us an equality with regard to our justification. This is not talking about uh, the different relationships that we have in the workplace further because it says they're neither slave nor free man. That is, that even in the church, in Christ's body, there can be distinctions with regard to some being masters and some being slaves. In fact, if you think about it, Philemon was not commanded to free his slave Onesimus, was he? Paul didn't say you need to get you need to stop having a slave. No, slaves and masters were to remain as they are. That wasn't a condoning of it by Paul, but the point is is that no matter what your position is in life, you don't need to change that position in order to be in Christ. You see? You don't have to change your position. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to be a male or a female to be in Christ. You simply need to have faith in Him. And so in that sense, we're all on the same footing. You're all one in Christ Jesus. The result of spiritual baptism, spirit baptism, this inward uh, placing of a person into the body of Christ and union with Christ is unity in the body that among believers... We should be united. The fifth and final benefit that Paul lists here that comes from having faith in Jesus Christ is found in verse 29. And that is an inheritance. And more specifically, it is that we as believers are co-heirs, co-inheritors with Christ. Now, it would be something if we could say that we were co-inheritors or co-heirs with Abraham. But notice what the text says in verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. In Ephesians, Paul says that that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, we'll spend more time on this idea next week because Paul there illustrates what it means to be to receive this inheritance in Christ, chapter four, verses one through seven. But I want to show you Paul's point here, and, and it's very simple. Those who belong to Christ are Abraham's true descendants. Those who belong to Christ are Abraham's true des- descendants. Now, how did Paul's opponents think a person became a descendant of Abraham? Through the law, through circumcision. 
That's why they were telling all the Gentiles, you need to obey the law. You can't set it aside. And Paul's saying, no. You want to be a true descendant of Abraham. You want to be a child of Abraham and receive the, the heir that comes with his promise. You need to, look at the first part of the verse, belong to Christ. That you and I get to enjoy the benefits of of Abraham's descendants. And notice what that benefit is at the end of the verse. It is heirs, that we are heirs according to the promise. Now look back to verse 16 that we looked at last week because Paul seems to say that only Christ will receive the blessing of Abraham. Verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So here's what we could get from this. The only true beneficiary of Abraham's descendant was Jesus. Because that's what the promise was pointing to. When it said that when God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your seed, he wasn't talking about every child of Abraham, true or ethnic. He was talking about one specific seed, Christ. And so the benefit really goes to Christ. But here's the beauty of this verse that because we, verse 29, belong to Christ, we are united with Christ, we now receive the same benefits from Abraham's promise that Christ receives. The truth is clear. That only the only genuine son of Abraham, the ideal son of Abraham, was Christ. Because the law could not make a person a child of Abraham or a child of God. The law can't do that. So the only way to become a child of Abraham, a true child of Abraham, which is a child of God, is to belong to Christ. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ. You have to be united to Him in order to receive the promise, in order to receive the inheritance. And so we are freed from the curse of the law through faith in Jesus Christ. We're adopted as sons. We are baptized into His body. We are united with Christ and we receive all the benefits that Christ receives through Abraham's promise. Let me make two points of application for us in closing. Number one, the pathway to spiritual living is not through moral education. Now we should know this from looking at our society. The things that our country the thing that our country needs the most is not more moral training. Because we're trying to get immoral people, when I say immoral I mean they don't follow God's New Testament commands for them. We're trying to get immoral people in that sense to do moral things. Jeremiah says this in chapter 13, verse 23. Can a leper change his spots? Then neither can one do good who is accustomed to doing evil. Okay, the, the thing that our society needs most is not more moral laws. 
the moral law never changed a person's heart. The only thing the moral law can do is it can show them their own sin. And ultimately what they need, what our country needs, is people who are transformed from the inside, who have been united with Christ, who have been changed and are being changed through His Word. That's what our country ultimately needs. And that only comes through the Gospel. And so the answer to the trouble that we face in our day is the Gospel. It's that people would understand that they are lost and all of the things that they do in life are worthless apart from Jesus Christ. They will all be burned up and be useless on the final day if they have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. The second point of application is that our position in Christ should lead us to Christian unity. Our position in Christ should lead us to Christian unity. And that means that as a church, there should be no division. Because when it comes to our standing before God, we are all equal. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no... uh, We we just ignore conflict, right? If there's a conflict that arises, we just ignore it. We can't have that. So we're just going to ignore it and become completely tolerant of everybody's behavior. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I'm saying is that, that we should be united around one purpose, serving our Master who's bought us with His blood. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come together as a body united together, not because of our pay level. Some of you make more money, some make less. right? Not because of our gender not because of our ethnic background or our education level. We all come and we're all united. We're all able to hold hands, in a sense, because of our relationship, our union with Christ. And that's one of the joys, the beauty of the Lord's Supper, that we come as common people, as different people, but we come on equal footing before God and we join hands together saying that we have the same purpose and we are united together with Christ through His blood. Let me pray and we will uh, prepare ourselves for this Lord's Supper that we're going to observe. Father, we thank You for the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ. We came long after the struggle of sin was at its peak. And we came long after the death and resurrection of our Lord, but we're thankful that the Word of God has been preserved for us until this time so that we could receive it, hear it, understand it through the power of Your Spirit and be changed by it. We can't imagine what our lives would be like apart from saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Where would we be apart from Him? Certainly we would have been on a pathway towards destruction, assuring ourselves of our final resting place, final unresting place, really, in hell. We certainly deserve that because of our sin, but for some reason, You shined Your mercy upon us and gave us Jesus Christ. And it's at this time of the service that we want to reflect on Him, especially through 
the Lord's table as we reflect on our unworthiness and His love that was displayed for us when He laid down His life for us. We need nothing more, Father, than Your grace. May You shine it upon us now as we respond to Your Word and as we come in unity around this table helps to remind us of our Savior and the great gift that He gave to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.